Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of Meditation and Art. Uh, in this uh, podcast series, I'll be discussing uh, how artists, uh, and uh, particularly artists with a, a consistent meditation practice, uh, blend those two together, how the meditation process affects the creative process and so forth like that. Some of the benefits of meditation with art and, and things like that. So we'll be diving pretty deep into both uh, the artist world and the meditation world and how they meet in the middle. So today I have with me as my first guest of this series, very exciting, uh, the great actress, writer, producer, uh, Naomi McDougal Jones. Now, I met Naomi on a cruise ship uh, a couple of years ago uh, where she was doing some really evocative speaking on uh, women's rights in Hollywood. And I, I was really drawn to the work that she was doing uh, as an activist, as a writer, as a producer, as an, as a, and as an actress. So a little bit about Naomi's background here. Uh, she as I mentioned, a writer, actress, a producer of two 13-time uh, award-winning feature films, uh, the first being uh, titled Imagine I'm Beautiful, which came out in 2014, and Bite Me, uh, which came out in 2019. I love the contrast between those two. <laughs> <laughs> They're both commands, but very different commands. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, Bite Me was uh, released uh, via a three-month, 51-screening, 40-city, joyful vampire tour, which I'm sure we're going to talk about quite a bit here, I imagine. I, I know a bit about that already. Uh, that tour was across the country of America and into Canada, right, if I'm not mistaken. We or didn't it just... get across the border. There were uh, work visa questions. <laughs> ah, ah, yeah, that old immigration thing. <laughs> hey. Uh, Naomi is an activist, as I mentioned, a speaker, an author, uh, for bringing gender parity to cinema. Her TED Talk, What Is It Like to Be a Woman in Hollywood, has received over one million views. Do go check that out. Uh, it's quite, quite evocative, as I mentioned. Uh, her book, The Wrong Kind of Woman, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood. It's now available wherever books are sold. Uh, for more about Naomi, you can visit her website, www.naomimcdougaljones.com. Welcome. Quite an introduction. I'm so honored to be the first guest. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the beginnings uh, of your career, how, how you actually got started. Uh, I, I believe you first started as an actress, right? Mm -hmm. And you moved into writing and producing and so forth. Yeah. So tell us about that evolution. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I've wanted to be a storyteller ever since I can remember. Um, and I think in the way that happens with a lot of little girls, when they discover that they're storytellers, everybody tells you that you should be an actress because that's sort of the thing that everyone feels like women are allowed to do in the storytelling realm. So that became my, and I, and I do love acting. And so that became my goal. And I mean, my whole childhood, I was just hell bent on getting to New York and being an actress. 
Um, and so I went to acting school um, and then got out and for college and then got out and started auditioning and very quickly came to understand that the roles available for women are terrible <laughs> mm -hmm. in film in particular. Um, and just spent two years auditioning for Naked Corpse number four and like, you know, competing with 300 other incredibly talented, beautiful women to play the very supportive girlfriend. And it just, the roles were so degrading, boring, just not reflective of the women that I knew in the world. Um, it just, it, it was like this, and, and to this day, only a third of the roles on screen at all are women. So film is which just as a reminder, women are actually 51% of the actual population. Um, so it just, I, I came to understand that film was this really bizarre medium in which women are a minority population and never get to do any of the interesting stuff, basically, and, are, and mostly have to be naked. So I, uh, I just got so frustrated that I was like, well, like I can write better roles for women than this. So I guess I should I should do that. And with a friend, we decided to make our first feature film, Imagine I'm Beautiful. And I mean, we knew less than nothing. We just literally started cold calling indie film producers. We made, we had made a spreadsheet. We started Googling indie film producers in New York City and made a spreadsheet of everyone we could find and just started cold calling and emailing them and asking them how to make a movie. Um, mm -hmm. Or if we could take them to coffee and if they'd tell us how to make a movie. And enough of them said yes that we sort of figured it out. Um, uh, yeah, and then I got bitten hard by the filmmaking bug and also during that time um, developed a thriving side gig as an, as an activist for, for women in film, um, which I think arose partly because I sort of came, I sort of came to that around 2011, 2012 when I became a filmmaker and started experiencing the incredible sexism and overt sexism towards female filmmakers, which I thought was bad as an actress, but is so much worse as a, as a female filmmaker when you're trying to actually gain a position of power and gain a voice. Um, and I just couldn't believe the things that were being said to us just in meetings like they were normal. But like it was a reasonable thing to say like, well, girls, you know that you're gonna have to get a male producer on board at some point just so that people will trust you with their money. Mm. And, uh, and I just, so I just became so enraged that this was still going on. And at that time that almost nobody was really talking about it. I mean, I, I felt like I discovered we were living in the matrix and, um, and I just like had to go around like making sure that people knew we lived in the matrix. And so that's, that's really what led to this, this big speaking career on that subject into the TED talk and then eventually to the book. Um, because it's just so damaging that this medium that, that shapes everything from our hobbies to our career choices to literally our neural pathways is up to this day, 95% of studio films are directed by men and overwhelmingly white men, um, mm. which is skewing. I mean, it's like all of society is trapped in this monolith of the white male gaze. Right. Yeah. Well said. I mean, it's um, particularly in the West, you know, uh, Hollywood has such a uh, is such a powerful lens. Um, you know, the the 
the amount of money that's spent into making feature films and the amount of widespread distribution uh, is so, um, it's, it's such an unconscious influence on the mind. Absolutely. Well, and, and particularly now within the last 10 years, I mean, Hollywood used to, used to primarily distribute their films domestically. I mean, of course they would sell them internationally, but over the last 10 years, foreign sales have skyrocketed of, of their movies um, due to some sort of shifting macroeconomic factors. And so now not only are they poisoning our, our US viewpoint, but they're, but they're exporting that white male monolithic matrix gaze on the entire planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know as in my travels too, I fall susceptible to stereotypes, not infrequently. Uh, and I know that there are stereotypes that have been, you know, handed to these other cultures that I'm traveling through uh, by Hollywood. And uh, it's, uh, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's very a strange thing to, to have that projected out onto you, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so good. It's good that you're doing that work. And, and uh, it sounds like to me that um, this arose as kind of a, a, like a need, like you were serving this need, you know, it kind of almost like, you know, I don't know, want to put words in your mouth, but almost like a calling uh, because you felt this void uh, that you experienced firsthand. And then you were like, well, how can I, how can I serve this? What can I do here to, to, to remedy the situation? Yeah, no, it, it certainly has felt like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's become a big part of my life for that reason. Like I certainly never set out with a goal of being an activist as like part of my life. And certainly it, if the, I would be only too happy to set that down again if, if the situation were rectified. Um, right. Although I find great purpose in that work, um, I would be very delighted to never have to give another uh, parody and film speech ever again. Um, but I, I suspect that probably within my lifetime that work will, will have to continue. I don't think we'll, we'll get to parody before my career is over. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. In, in Buddhist circles, uh, that, that's known as the bodhicitta, the, the opening of the heart-mind. And in uh, bodhicitta practice, uh, one visualizes the universe filled with all of these suffering beings. And the visualization goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you're just witnessing all of the suffering over and over again. And then at the same time, reaffirming the, the prayer of, I vow to alleviate all of the suffering, I vow to alleviate all of the suffering. So you're going back and forth between those two experiences. And then at the very end of the meditation, you realize you won't save one single being. Hmm. <laughs> and it just, it, it drops you. Like your heart just, your heart just you know, and, uh, and that's what that sounds like to me is a version your 21st century version of the bodhicitta meditation practice where, you know, we are, I mean, you know, to, uh, 
like from my and from my point point of view, I do these loving kindness practices and and teach loving kindness retreats in a similar way as as kind of a it's my contribution to 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 bring this shift in awareness um, now without over romanticizing my work and this isn't about me but but uh, uh, but um, and I've I I know like after every retreat I have the same thought like you know I'm gonna do this this you know maybe I maybe one person maybe two people but it, and that's why we keep doing it you know over and over again because we see the suffering in the world and we know that it doesn't have to be that way we see the things that uh, that are out of out of balance in the world and we we know that it doesn't have to be that way because we've seen it ourselves uh, and to see the type of suffering that's causing and trying to you just get this calling like how can I serve that that's very beautiful. So it's, it's good. It's, um, welcome to the front line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's good. So tell me, I, I mentioned a little bit about Buddhism there and this particular meditation practice. I know you have a thriving, healthy uh, meditation practice yourself. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about how that might have influenced your writing, uh, perhaps uh, influenced your acting uh, and so forth. How does that play a part? Um, well, so when I met you on a cruise ship <laughs> two and a half years ago, um, I did not have a meditation practice and, um, uh, that was a very interesting moment in my life that I met you because, um, I remember saying, I think to my husband, Stephen, who was on the trip with me, I was very, very sad on that trip. It was this amazing trip that, that we got to go on for free because I was giving talks. I was giving rousing feminist speeches on the, to confused cruise goers on the ship. <laughs> we're like, we're on vacation. Why are you speaking to us about feminism? Um, but it was, <laughs> we got this amazing trip out of it. Um, but it, it was this moment where I had, over a number of years, I had continued to achieve um, more and more sort of success markers in my career. And, um, and I think, and had the experience that I think a lot of people do of, of getting these success markers that you've been chasing and feeling, finding them really empty. Um, and, 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 and sort of like feeling like there was, there was a hole that they would fill that they didn't. And I was, I was very sad. Um, and it, I think a lot of, like a lot of people who experience success, that becomes a very isolating thing because if you're, if you're experiencing all the success, your peers do not want to hear about how sad you are. That's not, that's like, they, they don't, that's not a conversation they want to have. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was, I was just in this moment of really um, being sort of on my knees um, and not really knowing the path forward. Um, and then I met you and uh, we, we had a number of conversations on that trip and um, in your lovely, gentle, <laughs> non-pushy way, uh, meditation kept coming up and, and I, I began thinking more and more about it. And I think one dinner you were like, well, if you ever want to teach her, <laughs> <laughs> and it and it sort of felt like 
like, yeah, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's a lifeline here. Mm. Um, and so, so I did, I started studying with you when we got back, um, once a week for, for two and a half years now, which is pretty stunning. Um, and, um, I mean, it's completely changed my life and I'm not saying that just cause I'm on a talk with you. <laughs> um, I would say that in any podcast, but it's true. Um, I, I, so it, like, it's hard to talk about how it's impacted the work as much as it's just impacted everything. Um, in the sense that it's, it's grounded me within myself in a way that I didn't have before, which I think has allowed me to come to an experience of my work and my art in a much more honest way. Um, and, and to begin chasing the joy of doing that was actually the reason that I wanted to pursue this career in the first place, right? I mean, that's the, that's the childhood thing of, of t telling stories and putting on plays with the neighborhood kids and being in community theater and that kind of just pure joy in the doing of the thing was the reason that I set out on this career. And um, I feel like meditation has allowed me to understand in a very deep way how that is the thing that is the thing I need to be chasing in my work mm -hmm. rather than anything external mm. yeah that's quite a revelation <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah yeah so would you say that um in that newfound freedom uh, that allows a certain, uh, so you have this newfound connection with this creative process, I guess, or this, uh, this joy that you mentioned. Um, so I would imagine that, that that kind of, you know, you, when you're not chasing the what the, the successes that the, our culture tells us we should be chasing, uh, we kind of uh, reconnect, as you said, with that childhood joy. I imagine that it allows a different type of creativity. I don't want to again. I don't want to put words into your mouth. Yeah, for sure. And I I think um, to Hollywood in particular is famous for. Um, sort of getting people to perpetually chase baubles and and like sort of get very disconnected from themselves and their their true path and like i often say that that hollywood operates much like a high school lunch table like everyone's trying to get at the popular kids table but like it's very unclear how that happens or like what you need to do to be cool enough to be it just it's horrendous and so like there's it's so easy to fall into that pattern of like well I need to work with this person because they they're friends with the popular you know and I just have have over the last several years been able to release really all of that and and so so not only in my own creative process do I feel more connected to the work but maybe more importantly out like I just have gotten 
to build projects with the people that I just genuinely want to work with. And if, and if it doesn't feel good to work with somebody, then I don't work with them. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't matter. I don't care if they're at the popular table. Like it's just, cause I, I, I have looked into that abyss and seen how empty that is. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's something I can very much relate to uh, with my uh, previous life as a musician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, a lot of that too, and and um, yeah, it was a very similar experience actually. Uh, the closer I got to where I thought I wanted to be, uh, the more I realized that wasn't where I wanted to be, uh, and um, yeah, uh, um, yeah. So now I'm teaching meditation, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I have no regrets about that, um, but um, but I, I understand you know, what you're speaking to uh, resonates with me very deeply. Um, great. So let's talk a little bit about, um, well, at first I want to talk about uh, Bite Me, because I know you were using some meditation uh, yeah. teachings in your tour, uh, which I, you sent me a YouTube video that I found um, really breathtaking, uh, uh, brought tears to my eyes to see, mm -hmm. Uh, how you were uh, bringing these teachings to life. So why don't you uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what that was about before. Sure. Um, yeah, so actually this ties very neatly into what we were just talking about. So my first feature film, Imagine I'm Beautiful, um, we got it, we got it, we were chosen to get a distribution deal through a traditional distributor, which is a very, very big deal. That's like one of the things you're taught to chase as a filmmaker. And, um, and the outcome, like it felt like we were Cinderella, but then the actual outcome of that was pretty underwhelming, both from a financial perspective and from sort of a, just an experiential perspective of, of having the film released. I think um, films take a phenomenal amount of time to make. Uh, and and the only reason you're really making it is to be able to share it with audiences and to have the experience of people seeing and responding to your work. So, um, so by the time Bite Me came out, as I had meditated my way out of <laughs> um, a connection to what people were telling me should be true, um, we were my produce my producing team and I decided that we wanted to self-distribute the film because the things that we wanted, that connection with the audience and also a financial return were just way more likely if we actually just self-distributed it. Um, because we knew that we knew who our audience was and how to reach them. So we, um, we devised this slightly madcap uh, joyful vampire tour of America where myself, my husband and a documentary filmmaker moved into an RV for three months last summer. <laughs> And we drove 13,001 miles all around the United States. Um, and we did 51 screenings in 40 cities in 90 days. And mm. um, after almost every screening, we threw a joyful vampire ball. So the, the film is very much, the film is literally about, a, is a rom-com about a real life vampire and the IRS agent who audits her. <laughs> Uh, but what the film is really about is um, outsiders and um, 
and sort of seeing through our external differences to what is is true and similar about all of us and um, and also sort of how terrifying it is to really show up as all of who you are in the world that that takes an, a trim that's a tremendous act of bravery um, and to sort of like just let people judge you as they will but just to continually show up who, as who all of who you are um, so in the spirit of that we invited the audience to come to screenings dressed however made them feel most joyful that was the invitation so some people came dressed as vampires, but we had some truly amazing, like one woman came dressed as the album cover of the Yellow Submarine <laughs> album, because wow. that's the thing that makes her feel most <laughs> joyful. And, you know, some people just wore a lot of glitter or just it was whatever you wanted. And mm. so then um, after every after most screenings, we threw a joyful vampire ball, which was sort of part costume party, part chance to meet and hang out with us as the filmmakers part, sort of like let your freak flag fly event. Um, <laughs> and so as a transition from the film screening and the Q&A into that event, um, before the tour started, we were really wrestling with like, how do you set that space for people? Because we were just gonna be showing up in town and having big audiences of people who didn't know one another, didn't know us, and, and how do you really set that space to let people feel comfortable meeting strangers and, and, and like really meeting strangers at a time when technology has made us forget how to do that? Um, because all of these moments that used, I mean, now we're in COVID, so this is even more true, but before COVID even, um, all those little moments where you used to interact with strangers, like waiting in the checkout line at the grocery store or on a bus or whatever, everybody's now on their phones. And so those little moments where, where it's possible to reach through that barrier to a stranger and interact, um, we, we're, we've forgotten how to do that. And it's become very socially weird to do, <laughs> to do that because now everybody's on their phones. Um, and so, so we were thinking about, well, what, like, you know, what, what are we gonna do? And I think at that time you were teaching me the loving kindness meditation in my own practice. And I, I just realized one day that that's it. Um, that, the, that all anybody really wants is to be seen and accepted for who they are. And so, so, so what we did was I would lead um, the room in, in a loving kindness meditation first for themselves, because uh, I think a very profound thing in, in the teaching of that meditation is that you have to start with yourself and that you actually, it is impossible to offer that tr truly and freely to other people until you have actually been able to give it to yourself. Um, so we start would I would start with them and then I would say, okay, now I want you to look around the theater and find one person who you don't know and have never spoken to. Um, and now we're gonna close our eyes and now you're gonna offer that same loving kindness meditation to that person. Um, and it was an unbelievably profound experience. I mean, almost, we did it 51 times nearly and, and every time people would start crying and um, and it, and it really would unlock something in the room. Um, so, so then from there I would say, okay, now let's go to the Joyful Vampire Ball and 
I'd, I'd invite you to keep that same loving kindness space open in that event. And when you meet somebody new, and I encourage you to try to meet somebody new, um, don't ask them what they do or where they're from or where they live and all the normal questions that we ask people, but instead ask them either uh, what makes you joyful or what is something you'd like me to know about you? Hmm. Like try to see the person, not the labels. Hmm. Um, and those events were so amazing because people really did see each other and meet each other in a totally different plane than we normally do. It was really very special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I imagine so. Yeah, what if, what if, um, well, tell me about what that, what that felt like. Um, I mean, it felt, it felt very expanding and I found myself weepy very frequently too. And I think, um, as we, so we did make a whole documentary of this tour and there's one episode, I think it's episode three of the joyful vampire tour of America series, which is on YouTube where the documentary filmmaker did such a good job of capturing this part of the night and sort of like people's expressions. And I think it really made me understand in a different way how deeply we all just need to be seen and accepted in all of ourselves. Um, mm. There were, and particularly traveling around to different parts of the country doing this was so interesting. Um, there were there, there was one screening where when I said, and now I'm gonna lead you in a, in a little Buddhist meditation where this was a very Christian part of the country where two people stood up. I, I said the words Buddhist meditation and they stood up and they walked out of the theater. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> there we are. Um, but, but that aside, it, there was almost nobody that that failed to reach. Um, even even people were like in the beginning, I could feel that the room was like water. Like you want me to put my hand on my heart and close my eyes? <laughs> like what? Uh, Buddhist meditation? What? But just that that simple act of, and and one of the phrases in the in, in the meditation is, um, oh no, now I'm doing the compassion one, which is like <laughs> like it but slightly different. But um, may may you be seen and accepted for who for who you are or something. May may I experience the world uh, opening to me just as I am. Yes, which is such a beautiful prayer for ourselves and each other. And I think it really made me understand the degree to which like that is the thing we're all seeking. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, for me, I, 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 those phrases and that one in particular, um seems to hold a lot of weight in the current world mm. situation but you know i don't i'm not sure we've ever been in a world situation where that wouldn't hold weight you know <laughs> and so um yeah it's uh it is it's one of those uh practices that just keeps speaking and speaking i hopefully eventually we'll get to a place where it doesn't speak anymore but uh <laughs> But uh, like we were saying at the beginning, yeah, probably uh, not in our lifetimes. <laughs> probably not in our lifetimes. Yeah, um, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for for using uh, the vehicle 
of your tour, no pun intended, uh, for uh, for raising awareness. And there's no greater uh, no greater um, movement. I, I don't know. I, like when I when I when I see you know people working in Hollywood or musicians, and uh, or they're in this position, they have a stage. You know, and for me, there, there's a choice there. You know, each time somebody gets on a stage, I'm getting on a soapbox now. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they have a choice there of, of, of enlightening people. They have a microphone. They're in that power uh, place to where they can bring something uh, of a higher vibration, you know. And you chose to, to, to go with a higher vibration. And, and um, I think it takes a lot of bravery. And I really applaud you for it. I think uh, what the world needs now, right? Uh, so, um, so kudos and congratulations for that. It's, it's really beautiful that you managed to do that. And speaking of bringing higher vibrational frequencies to mass audiences, uh, that brings me to the light ahead. Uh, which is it seems to me to be very uh, an extraordinary work of high ambition. Uh, so why don't you uh, tell us about that? It very and also uh, reflective of a, a high level of compassion as well. Uh, so let's hear a little bit about the light ahead. Yeah. So this is a project that has actually come emerged out of COVID, which is, I think, as this is a time of great destruction and great possibility and creation. It's very, it's, it's interesting to be in a time of both ends of that being so heightened. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I have a friend down here in Atlanta where I moved in November, who is Jess Remington, who's a next economy activist and thinker and writer. And um, she is co-authoring this book right now called Beloved Economies. Um, that's about the next economy movement and sort of, um, that's coming out next year. And so she and I have partnered on making a podcast that we're now in production on um, called A Light Ahead, Stories for a Beloved Economy. Um, that the goal of the show is basically to explore the question, what would 2030 look like if the USA had an economy that truly cared for everyone? Um, and so we've, what we've done is we've paired 23 screenwriters with 23 next economy activists and thinkers and organizations. Um, and so in, in, in the movement that Jess is part of, there are all these people with these really amazing and innovative ideas about, about what a different kind of economy would look like, exploring everything from uh, different types of universal basic income, what that could look like, to what, what would it look like if we actually if the US government did pay reparations to, um, to First Nations tribes, as well as to um, those who are descended from slaves, um, to, um, to even just some questions like what would a, there's, there's one woman working on the question of like, what would, a, what would a bank look like that loved black women? Like what would that financial institution even look like in its form? Um, and so we've paired, 23 screenwriters and each of them has been assigned an activist and the the writers and activists are meeting right now and then the writers take that person's idea and turn it into a fictional 
a 10 to 15 minute narrative radio drama essentially about a moment in 2030 if that activist ideas came true. Um, so in the way that the black, that show Black Mirror looks in the future and says sort of like, what if, what happens if all of our worst instincts <laughs> went out? Uh, this show is looking in the opposite direction of what if we actually got things right? Like, and that's why the show is called A Light Ahead. What, what is a positive thing that we can be working towards? Or, or in this case, 23 different positive things that we could be working towards over the next 10 years. Mm. So how does one tune into this podcast? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the podcast will start getting released um, at, towards the end of August. Um, oh, okay. okay. So your best bet is actually to sign up for my newsletter on my website, which is naomimcdougaljones.com. And um, I'll definitely be sending out notices. We're, we're in talks with a couple of different distributors, so I'm not actually sure what platform it's going to be on. Yeah, sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, again, what a what a movement towards compassion, uh, and uh, the more drops in the bucket, you know, uh, and that sounds like a that sounds like a big rain shower. <laughs> me. So yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's exciting. It, we talk a lot about Star Trek with this because there's this phenomenon that Star Trek, when it was on television, uh, the writers of that show came up with all of these technologies as like super futuristic technologies, like wouldn't this be great if these technologies existed and they put them in the show, as a result of which the children, many of the children who were watching the show growing up, then went on to go and invent those technologies that they had only been able to imagine because they were in the show. Mm -hmm. um, and so our, our goal with this podcast is to do a very similar thing for sort of social change and, and economic shift. Like we can't, how do we know what we're working towards if we, if we don't have a light ahead, if we can't see where we're going? Hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for sharing all of that and uh, sharing your light ahead. Uh, and um, thanks for being on, on the podcast. Uh, yes, on the my pleasure, my pleasure. I'll just say a few closing words here. Um, thanks uh, everyone uh, for tuning in. Uh, this will be available on, uh, probably on Instagram, on my Facebook page. It'll be available on my podcast audio as well, uh, which is Such Sweet Thunder. If you go to Spotify and put in Such Sweet Thunder and my name, my podcast comes up there. Uh, so, um, That'll all be made available to you there. Um, if you are an artist and you have a meditation practice, please do get in touch with me if you'd like to be featured on the show. Um, I'm actively uh, uh, looking for people. I have a couple, uh, I have a, the next month or so lined up. Uh, so that's exciting for me as well. Uh, but if you'd like to be featured sometime over the summer uh, talking about meditation and art, please do get in touch. Thanks again, and I will be back on Monday uh, doing uh, my Such Sweet Thunder meditation program on Facebook Live and on Instagram, uh, where I'll be giving a talk on mindfulness of the breath and body. So I hope to see you all there. Thanks again, Naomi. Uh, be well, be well. Yeah, thank you.